Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. A couple things before we get to this week's show. On Monday afternoon, look for the audio-only version of the fifth session of the Darkwater Project's digital colloquium in your Modern Art Notes podcast feed. This latest session is informed by Matthew Fry Jacobson's book, Whiteness of a Different Color, European Immigrants in the Alchemy of Race, and jumps off from Jacobson's book to consider art such as Spanish colonial-era casta painting, Robert Henry portraits, a major Diego Rivera mural in San Francisco, and early 20th century public sculpture raised by Monument Lab's recent National Monument Audit, which you heard about here on The Man Podcast. As ever, the video version of each session of Darkwater's Colloquium is available on YouTube. Just search for the Darkwater Project, and the first four videos will pop right up, with the fifth to come sometime over the weekend. Next, neat news from the Heinz Awards for the Arts, the folks who sponsor a general achievement award given out annually by the Pittsburgh-based Heinz Family Foundation. I understand that the Heinz people listened to our recent program with Vanessa German, and heard German say that she can walk through an exhibition of her work and deliver spoken word poetry in engagement with each piece. The Heinz team thought that was pretty damn cool. They're right. So they invited German to do just that for a virtual event that celebrates German's winning of a Heinz Award. And German said yes. So that event is coming up on November 14th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. You can sign up at bit.ly, so bit.ly, slash Vanessa Heinz Award, all one word. That's bit.ly slash Vanessa Hines Award. On to this week's show. My first guest this week is Emily Braun. With Elizabeth Cowling, she is the co-curator of Cubism and the Trump Loe tradition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. The exhibition considers Cubist works by George Brock, Juan Gris, and Pablo Picasso in the context of the centuries-long Trump Loe painting tradition. In addition to dozens of major Cubist works, the exhibition includes paintings by artists such as Samuel Van Hoogstraten, William Harnett, and more. Cubism is on view at the Met through January 22, 2023. It is accompanied by an outstanding catalog that was published by the museum. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for just $43 to $50. Can't believe the Met was able to do it at that price. On the second segment, Mark Steinmetz. But first, Emily Braun, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Philip Guston Now, showcasing a retrospective of the artist's 50-year career. See Guston's shift from abstract expressionism to humanism as his art reflects social injustice and excavates the anxieties of personal conviction. On view through January 16th at the MFAH. Learn more at mfah.org slash philipguston. On view through April 2023 at the Getty Villa Museum in Malibu, the glorious new exhibition, Nubia, Jewels of Ancient Sudan, displays beautiful jewelry, metalwork, and sculpture that show off the wealth and splendor of Nubian society. Located in present-day southern Egypt and northern Sudan, the kingdoms of ancient Nubia flourished for nearly 3,000 years. The exhibition features objects from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston's collection, you can also discover contemporary artwork inspired by Nubia in Adornment Artifact, a series of sister exhibitions at five sites across L.A. Plan your visit and book free reservations at getty.edu. California artist Alexis Smith is widely known for working in collage, layering quotes from film and literature with movie posters, album covers, advertisements, and newspapers. She highlights the narratives embedded in our culture, 
asking us to think critically about how they inform our sense of self and our society. Now, through February 2022, immerse yourself in Smith's collection of images and objects, the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. From intimate artists' books to room-sized installations, visitors will witness film, literature, pop culture, and Hollywood reinvented. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. And we're back. Emily Braun, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Let's start in the late 19th century when Trump Loy began a kind of resurgence, including and especially in the United States, for that matter. What brought Trump Loy back or, or, or re-forward in artistic practice beginning in around like the 1880s or 1890s? Well, there were a group of painters around Philadelphia, New Haven, the Northeast Coast of the United States who are responsible for this revival of Trump Loy, William Harnett, Peto, John Haberly, and Jefferson Chalfant and others. Philadelphia had been a traditional art center in the United States, also beginning with the Peel family, a city where art and science mixed. It was also the site of a very important mint and the printing industry. I imagine in a, in a general sense that the spirit of Trump Loy is, is, is revived because of this era of, of doubt and of hoodwinking and in confidence games and in, in the bars and on the streets on the rise of spectacle. And Trump Loy painting participated in this culture. I'll, I'll cite Michael Asia's title of his wonderful book, Looking Askance, that is being suspect of, of, of what you're seeing and what you're reading and being in on the game of hoodwinking and so forth. You note in the catalog, and for not the first time on this program, probably not the last, I will note that the catalog is absolutely glorious. You note in the catalog that the Cubists probably didn't know of those late 19th century Americans, but they did know or or, or would have likely known of the European Trump Loy tradition going back to earlier centuries, 1600s, 1700s, and indeed there are such in the show, including a still life of four bunches of grapes by Juan Fernandez, a Labrador, and painting of a bouquet of flowers ready to be, about to be, possibly going to be obscured by a hanging curtain by Andrian Vanderspelt and Franz van Mieris the Elder. How does opening the show with old master painting reveal that cubism held on to one significant set of painting traditions, even as it broke with others? When we started to look at the Tomploy elements of, of Cubism, and, and I want to begin by saying this show was conceived by me and Rebecca Rabinow back in 2015. And then when Rebecca Rabinow left to become the director of the Menil Foundation in 2016, the Met asked me to stay on curating the show. And Lizzie Cowling, who was already a consulting curator on the wallpaper section, was brought on to, to uh, as a full co-curator. We always... Imagine that the exhibition would begin with the story of Pliny the Elder from 77 AD, with the story of the creative competition, the contest between Soxis and Parhasius. So we were going to begin with that story, and we were going to begin with a, la- a painting, ideally by a Labrador who was known as the Zipsis of his time, because he painted these grapes hanging in a dark chamber for winter storage, alongside a classic Baroque Trompe-Loy painting with a curtain in front of it, which... Rembrandt did another example of that, for example, but it was of a uh, biblical scene. 
with the curtain in front of it. And the fact that the Dutch collectors often had protective curtains in front of their painting on a brass rod would have added to the, to the roofs, to the perception that there was a real curtain there. So we very much wanted to begin with the past and painting traditions of the past to set the stage for what the Cubists were going to do in both parodying that tradition and emulating it just at the moment when they themselves were, when they were taking the Western illusionism apart bit by bit, primarily light, dark, or chiaroscuro modeling and perspective. What, what better means to reveal the nature of painting or the metapictorial tradition than to go back to the Trompe tradition? And one of the things this exhibition does is also not only point out what the Cubists were doing on this level, but also what Trompe really was about. We had centuries of hackneyed painters doing Trompe paintings that would then end up in the flea market. But we also have this storied history of it being a very erudite, playful, but serious conceit about the nature of pictorial representation. Tyler, I want to go back to a, your introduction to this question, because it's, it's a really important thing you said. You mentioned that you didn't know whether or not they would have seen the American painters, but they would have seen European painters or paintings of this tradition, these board paintings, these letter racks, the attributes of the painter. And Elizabeth Cowling, my co-curator, and I had a, a very telling conversation because she said to me, Mimi, people call me Mimi, even though my real name is Emily, the, Ameri- the, the Cubists could never have seen, could never have seen the Americans. Perhaps they saw the chromolithograph of Harnett's wonderful board painting of the old violin, which was reproduced as a chromolithograph, but they could not have seen them. And my response to that was, let's presume they never saw them. And they may never have seen the individual paintings that we chose for this exhibition. But that didn't really matter because they would have known, without a doubt, of this long tradition of these tropes of Trump Loy. So whether they, they saw a Heisbrex or whether they saw a Beskinus or whether they saw a Haberly, a specific painting doesn't really matter. They would have seen uh, throughout the, their academic training, and of course, we're, we're going to come to Brock's training as a, as a house painter, they would have seen many, many pictures uh, which play with table edges, which play with fake frames, which play with the faux bois background, with objects moving towards the spectator on those threshold spaces. And they would have known of, of this trompe l'oeil tradition and its descent into kind of popular culture and disrepute on the part of the elite. And that's what's really fascinating. I think that really proves the transhistorical thesis of this exhibition. And we know that, you know, Apollinaire was reading Pliny. These stories from, from Picasso's academic training of, of the ancients would have been well known. Speaking of the philosophical history that the three cubists in the show are tapping into, tell us about grapes and curtains and why they would have been important to the cubists and why they're in so many of the pictures in your show. I mean, there are a lot of grapes in the show. <laughs> yes, in fact, we discovered uh, once we dived in that the, the, as of around 1911 and accelerated with 1912 in the collage phase that the cubists paint grapes more than any other fruit and sometimes mm. just exclusively in its sing- signal moments. And a bunch of grapes like the nail casting a shadow, they're like metonyms for the whole trompe l'oeil tradition and game. They are symbols of pictorial artifice. And in fact, uh, if we go back to the grapes for a moment, there's the Pliny story that the grapes were so luscious, so moist, so lifelike that a bird swept down and pecked at them. So the bird was deceived. 
The interesting thing about grapes, so they become this immediate symbol for artists throughout the centuries of this magisterial illusionism that may not actually deceive the eye, but will still, you'll, you'll stand in front of these pictures and you, you will feel the moisture on the skin of the grape. You'll feel the plumpness. You'll want to grab that bunch. In other words, these artists have a degree of illusionism, which is such that they can really stimulate the senses, primarily touch. And I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to that. Interestingly, modeling spheres in the round is one of the basic steps in academic and fine art training of, of, of learning to draw and paint because one has to model that sphere in the round and then that, that, that transition, the penumbra from light to shadow and the dot of highlight on the top. So to paint a bunch of grapes is not only a, a, a illusion to Trompe-Loy and exercise in that, it's also self-reflexive reference to how one learns pictorial illusionism and to the basic tricks of the trade. One of the joys of the catalog was that I immediately became fascinated by something that I hadn't much thought of before, and that was the many different ways in which Brock and Picasso particularly presented grapes in their Cubist still lifes, and, and indeed why. So forgive my butchering syntax, but you point to how there are kind of, I don't know, multiple Trumploys and how both men painted and, you know, air quotes, constructed grapes on the surface of their paintings. How did they paint or represent grapes both differently and inventively? So Brock is the first to introduce grapes, and he does so when he introduces sand as if he's going to accentuate the illusionistic sense of tactility with real tactility on the surface. And he begins to do that in 1911, still in the so-called analytic cubist phase. And then he uh, introduces them when he does the first papier collet, paper on paper, in which he uses trompe wood-grained wallpaper, which is, is significant because the wood grain is, is the support of, of the literal support of so many of these traditional Trompe paintings, the wood grain background. And there he does a kind of schematic rendering in this first papier collet. There's the bunch of grapes and a fruit dish and a rather schematic rendering. Uh, Picasso in the exhibition, you'll see a beautiful violin and grapes of 1912 painting from the Museum of Modern Art, where on the upper right are, is a bunch of grapes in which he's taken pains to both show them in a kind of ham-handed rendition and at the same time a kind of lustrous way. Picasso's always showing off that he knows the academic technique at the same time that he's uh, taking it apart. Picasso will also use a kind of uh, almost stenciled form in several of his papier collet for the grapes as well. Brock introduces it in this suite where he's going back and forth between real faubois wallpapers and hand-painted renditions of those counterfeit wallpapers. So they're always going back and forth. Once they introduce real material artifacts, real papers, then they, then they confuse you with hand-done versions of those pasted papers. And faux collage, by the way, is something that the Americans introduced and introduced rather well. As to, as to grapes, however, you didn't mention Juan Gris, and I think Gris is, is one of the revelations of this exhibition, sort of been seen as the third wheel, and he's very much not, although he was conscious of that. And Gris does grapes in a variety, pun intended, of ways. He introduces these strange silhouetted grapes when he brings the silhouette into the picture, silhouetted black negative uh, shapes of wine glasses and pipes and bottles unhinging them from their from their positive form because of course the shadow is always attached and he plays with our mind and our eye when he does that 
And in the first canvases where the silhouette comes into play, there are these bunches of grapes poignantly and pointedly placed on the still life surface. And he also does other collages where in the same sort of fruit bowl, he'll show the grapes three ways in an outline, perfectly mouthwateringly, illusionistically described, and then in a negative shadow form. So even within the bunch of grapes itself, Greece is having fun mixing up different types of representation. We will come to the tripartite pseudo competition a little later on. And indeed, your wink at it in the third paragraph of your essay. But speaking of Gris, one of the major paintings at the core of the Gris Brock Picasso project in these years is one that, so far as I know, has not been exhibited during our lifetimes, but you write about it in the catalog and it's referenced in the show. It's it's Gris' great 1912 The Wash Stand. And as we just talked about grapes, I wanted to raise a curtain painting. What makes the washstand such an important painting, both in its address of philosophical and art history, the curtain, but also in pointing to the Cubist and afterward future? So the washstand is one of two Cubist collages that one re-exhibited in the fall of 1912 in Paris. And as we know, Brock and Picasso's Cubism was very much a, a, a private affair. That is to say, they didn't exhibit publicly once they signed their contracts uh, with the dealer, Daniel Henri Conviler. And Gris, however, continued to, to exhibit publicly. And he is the first to exhibit these collages. In the case of the washstand, it has a piece of mirror in it, fragmented mirror pieces, as well as actual product labels. So it's probably the, it's one of the first times that we have actual typography, as opposed to hand-painted typography, We have the actual labels, the printed things stuck onto uh, the canvas surface. And the washstand is important for three reasons, because it's one of the two first publicly exhibited collages. Secondly, because it unveils this new art, it trumpets it with the curtain of Zeuxis, uh, even with the brass rod across the top. And then with this kind of graphic explicitness, the curtain is being pulled back to reveal the scene. And thirdly, because of the piece of mirror. And uh, Gris did two works with a piece of mirror. We have one of them for the exhibition, the Marble Console. And he sort of facetiously said to, he recounted that the mirror is so difficult to depict because it's supposed to create the sense of actuality. It's usually reflecting, in air quotes, as you said, the artist or a bigger part of the of the a room in front of the picture that the viewer cannot see. But of course, it's it's magnificent illusionism will only show that the picture is a static thing because nothing moving will be reflected in the mirror, not even light. So Gris said, why attempt to do something that's sort of impossible? I'm just going to stick on a real piece. And this has always been perceived as an extraordinarily radical act. It was, as was the art of collage and exhibiting in a fine art context. But it's fascinating to consider that already in the 1600s, Cornelius Heisbrecht did a, a tidy or a toilet bag, toiletry bag, he did a tidy or a toiletry bag uh, with a comb and letters in which he also inserted a piece of rectangular mirror and then did a tromploy little frame around it. So this, this is another fascinating aspect of this show is how artists come to the same conclusions and know the same ideas of what are lay motifs in the history of representation in the Western pictorial tradition that we can play with that we can cross the threshold between representation and reality. And in a work like The Washstand, they're engaging contemporary French painting as well. I mean, there are all those bathers and washstands in French painting of the late 19th and early 20th century. 
So deconstructing and taking apart art history, even as they engage with it. We talked a little bit about print media earlier in the context of Philadelphia, which from, you know, 18, uh, you know, the 1830s onward was the capital of American lithography, engraving, chromolithography, all the rest. All three of these guys use actual print media, books, newspapers, sheet music, especially within their cubist work. How had previous artists, and sometimes going back a heck of a long way, also used print media and Trumploy compositions? So the still life emerged as an independent genre around, around 1600. We have rare examples of it beforehand, and we have examples of still life objects around the marginalia of, of manuscripts. And we have the beginning in, in religious paintings of the Virgin Mary in a domestic setting, for example. But it emerges as a still life genre around 1600. And Trompe emerges as a subset of still life about 150 years after the Gutenberg's invention of the printing press. And so almost immediately we have printed matter, typeface and typography entering into these still life compositions. And it's fascinating to consider how that opens up the still life from its usual domestic setting into the world at large. So it can bring in political issues of the day, gender politics of the day, references to the artist and his circle. And often the printed matter is juxtaposed with handwritten or penned letters, almost as if to ask the viewer, is there something more authentic with an autograph? What is more prone, what we think about handwriting as being more prone to forgery, but we think, well, once something's printed, that's set, it can't be fiddled with. And furthermore, it must be the truth. But we know from historians that already in the late 1600s and this exponential growth of print media, that there were lots of opinions in the press about editorials and pamphleteering. And you can't read what, you can't believe necessarily what, what you read. So with the introduction of printed matter, there's all sorts of levels, again, about conventions of representation, in this case, the written language or the spoken language. There's another level of play between word and image. There's the element of actuality of current events. And then there's the aspect of self-referentiality over and over again, because more often than not, headlines and mastheads are also managed to create double entendres about the process of art making or the artist and, and, and his circle. When we get to late 19th century America, as you just noted, Philadelphia is the center for printing and lithography and, and uh, minting. And we have this exponential growth in types of, of fonts and typefaces and types of printed matter, postcards, pamphlets, brochures, placards. It's, it's pretty great. And, and they play with all of this. One, one of the other things that Trompe-Loy does is to frustrate frustrate the reader. So in, in, already in a Edward Collier, and then again in a Harnett, you see a newspaper being rendered. Again, always a hand-painted simulacrum, sometimes of actual documented newspapers and front pages, sometimes completely invented press. And as you get closer, the print becomes illegible, but you don't see that until they've drawn you in. The Cubists will do the same. And the Cubists use newspapers and wallpapers and sheet music. I think numerically, they probably use newspapers and, and wallpapers more than, more than sheet music, but they also use actual calling cards and uh, other kinds of printed matter. 
they are picking up on the same kinds of games, now referring to themselves, to current events. And they're using real papers now, although they also do hand-rendered ones. And what's sort of poignant is that in the hand-painted versions with oil paint, those newspapers never fade. But in the Cubist collages, they've yellowed and they're fading. I keep finding myself laughing because all of this kind of reflexivity and doubling is funny. There is a mini essay you wrote in the catalog on typography as a Trump lawyer subject. And I hadn't thought of phrasing it that way before or, or thought of it in that context before, but hearing you talk about it. The 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 title of that section, the typography of Trump Loy, is, is a play itself on a very famous essay by Robert Rosenblum, uh, with whom I studied years ago, brilliant art historian. Uh, he wrote uh, a, a groundbreaking essay called The Typography of Cubism, I believe 1981. I still give it to my students to read. And in it, he decoded, he decoded the presence of words and newspapers in Cubist painting and collages. And he was the first to do that in 1981, because, of course, these collages and Cubism was interpreted solely through the key of, of modernism. One didn't read the newspapers, what they said in the pictures. And he said, but we're supposed to read them. They were chosen for, for, for a specific reason. And, and he also talked about the product labels, another form of typography that's in their work. So it's, it's an homage to, to Robert Rosenblum, even as he, he did not go into the history of this in trompe l'oeil, just like Leo Steinberg, another art historian whom I knew well, both inspirational scholars. He, of course, coined the term the flatbed picture, the flatbed, flatbed picture plane, when he talked about the significant change around 19, in the late 1950s, with Rauschenberg and even earlier with Dubuffet, where we no longer, the axis of the painting was no longer vertical, but horizontal, like an editor's desk with paper matter and other things embedded in the horizontal plane. And Steinberg was not aware of this whole tradition of medley prints, prints or he didn't bring it in. And this, this already, already in the, in the early 17th century, we have this play between the horizontal view down on the table and the vertical actuality of when you look at those pictures on the wall. And that is a testament to, to how buried this tradition of Trump Loy was, how negated it was. And indeed, these medley prints were kind of subculture in the print, in the print media, because it grew from this idea of different prints and different printed matters spread out on a table. And when a print collector would come into these print shops in early 18th century Britain, this was, excuse me, yes, in around 1700, they would see all these prints uh, spread out on the table. And hmm. the, then we have this self-referential depiction of these pictures within pictures. So it's fascinating. It was fascinating for us to see how these things were overlooked in writing on Cubism over the decades. Uh, similarly, let's bring in Clement Greenberg, his whole notion of the literal materialism of the picture and how Cubism and the pasted paper uh, revolution, he talks about Brock so deceptively deceiving and undeceiving the eye shadows coming up on the surface, right? Because the, the, the plane of the picture is flat. There is no space. Again, this all existed already in the 1600s with these letter racks and board paintings that refuse traditional perspective and all the papers seem to come out towards you over the threshold. You know, within this part of the show is one of my favorite little 20th century art histories. So forgive me for inserting something here. The show includes Brock's August 1912 Papier Collet and charcoal work fruit dish and glass, which is a picture with grapes, which we were talking about a moment ago. And it's a picture that famously sent Picasso into conniptions. And so not only does this show 
reveal the 20th century Troika's engagement with the past, but often with each other. So Picasso goes into conniptions, you know, runs to Douglas Cooper and says, and complains that Brock had not made this painting until Picasso was out of town. The quote Cooper published is, he waited until I turned my back, Picasso said. And so the exhibition includes one of Picasso's two responses, the great guitar, sheet music, and glass at the McNay in San Antonio, which plays on lots of Brock turfs, including a couple we'll come to in a moment. The other picture with which Picasso responds is the dagger, and it's not in the show. It's called by, or it's known as violin and newspaper. It's at the Ludwig in Cologne, and it's Picasso doing faux bois and guitars and violins and more print media. This time, the newspaper that's present includes a headline which translates as "A driver kills his wife." So here at the end of 1912. In five words, Picasso is both consigning Brock to what he considered a secondary role, and he's bumping him off. So seeing both the historical echoes and the present, anything you can do, I can do better and and more lethally going on between them is an enormous amount of fun. The <laughs> and and then we have we have supposedly Gris' awareness of the wanting to kill each other off, which is the musician's table that uh, Papier Collet, which is also in the exhibition in the typography of Trompe-Loy section, that beautiful guitar in both solid and void form that floats off the table. And to the right of it are what looks like a single headline from Le Matin, but is actually two. He cut and pasted one from, from a day or two later. And the headline is Explorers in Disaccord. And he uses the headlines about the Explorers in Disaccord in three different collages, and it was referring to the diplomatic fear that had er erupted as to who, which Western explorer had discovered the so-called river of doubt in the uh, Amazon basin. And in fact, Gris uses headlines about this, these explorers, this dispute, as a kind of pointing to a falling apart between Brock and Picasso at this moment. We have no absolute proof of this, but it's been written about before, and it corresponds to a time when we when we know they're growing apart. And Fernand Olivier mentions this uh, in her memoirs. So this this is your your reading of what you you know you just mentioned in, in in this back and forth between Picasso and Brock seems very much to have played out on the surfaces of these papier collets, both in the the media that they kept using to sort of out with each other and and in the headlines that they chose. Speaking of Brock and decoration, faux bois and whatnot, one of the most fascinating things in the catalog and, and the show is the way you and Claire LaThomas bring forward what LaThomas calls Brock's artisanal origins, that is his family's background in house and decorative painting. I think it's worth noting that Cubism is is going on during a certain height of French interest in decorative painting. Think of the Nobbies and and their screens, Puvi on both sides of the Atlantic, for that matter. His painted de- decorations, and of course, Matisse could not have been more all in on the French decorative tradition, as John Klein covered in a book just a couple of years ago. And I think the way you represent decoration itself and the Cubist's engagement with it is really interesting. So maybe I should first simply ask, how do you represent decoration, wallpaper, and and, and other stuff in the show as objects? Yes. Well, here I must give the nod to my co-curator, Elizabeth Cowling, Lizzie Cowling, who is responsible for this section on wallpaper. And Lizzie has done remarkable research over the past 
I think 15 years in identifying the actual wallpapers that Brock, Picasso, and Brie used in their papier collet. Can I interrupt for just a second to say that that discovery is extended into the catalog, where on one side of a page you will have a painting and the other side of the page or on the next page you will have the exact wallpaper. It makes the catalog a gripping, you know, like page turner. Thank bed. you. But you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> very much. And in, in the installation, we work very hard. We have the actual, actual rolls of wallpaper and then extraordinary vintage albums from the Musée des Arts Décoratifs in Paris. In fact, we went to the two wallpaper museums in, in, in Europe, one in Rixheim, which is solely devoted to wallpaper, and then the Musée des Arts Décoratifs in Paris, which has its, its wallpaper collection. And the wallpapers that were chosen for the exhibition and the catalogue are either the exact wallpapers they used or ones very similar to. So Elizabeth Cowling began to, to research uh, which wallpapers, uh, largely late 19th, but also turn of the century. Picasso had a proclivity to use uh, earlier wallpapers, and uh, we know that he actually tore them off the walls in some cases. But otherwise, they would have seen wallpaper shops, as Brock did in Avignon when he first saw the Faubois, on the streets of Paris and towns, they were a burgeoning phenomenon, which allowed middle and lower middle class households to, to wood panel their walls, when in the past, wallpaper was a very laborious, high costly color block printing method. So it was perceived as part of the democratization of culture and of availability that those with less affluent means could afford to create faux chair uh, railings, for example, boisserie or granite walls in their otherwise modest uh, dwellings. And the, the fact that they chose wallpaper, of course, first of all, it was many of them, most of them are themselves trompe l'oeil. They're, they're fraudulent. They're pretending to be a surface they are not. They are pretending to be carved in the case of the, of the, the leaf and berry borders. And it's not just whole swaths of wall, but also the, you could buy the borders to be cut again, which serve as, as chair railing or wainscoting or even uh, the edges of paneling. And Brock and Picasso, Brock, uh, Picasso in particular, will go to town using the borders as, as faux frames. We really wanted to make the point that there's Georges Brock, who comes out of a very different tradition than Picasso. This was known before, but this exhibition and catalog researches this deeply. And this is the work of Claire Lotema, who wrote a whole essay for the catalog on what it meant to be what it meant for Brock and what it meant in general to be trained as painter de, de bâtiment, a house painter. And as we learn, house painters was a kind of guild that covered everything from the basic lathe, construction, lathing and painting, priming of your wall in your home or a building to uh, those who did the more specialized faux granite, faux stucco, faux, faux wood surfaces to those who were trained to the next level, which would, would be to do sort of vis panoramic vistas or recessive spaces. Uh, they were, were trained in the art of filage, which simply means stripes of different gradations of color, which creates the perception of relief in the eye of relief moldings. And Brock was a third generation house painter. In fact, his family business was so successful uh, that we know the, the father rose in the economic ranks and was you know, able to afford better things than the, his father before him. And Claire Letema's research included going into the archives and looking at the estate records of these painter decorators to see how they, how they economically ascended by virtue of what, their, what was left in their estates, including 
fine art prints and little bronze sculptures. They could afford mm. to buy things. You know, they could afford to collect things. So the trade itself en encompasses hierarchy and had been going on for centuries. And our larger point was twofold. First of all, that Brock comes out of this tradition. He was never formally trained in the Fine Art Academy. And he was proud of, of his background. He introduced Picasso to these tricks of the trade, to the wood graining, how to use the comb and so forth. And we have in the exhibition a whole installation of about eight images from decorator portfolios, which are what we call the how to do it section. These are the tools you need. This is how your hand held the instrument. This is the amount of paint you put on to create uh, enough medium uh, to, to, do the, to do the graining. And uh, the second point here is, is how the Cubists themselves are engaged in this. We've always known this about Cubism, that it was engaged in a dialogue between high and low overturning hierarchies. But lowbrow culture or popular culture can mean many things. And it also embraces the artisanal or the craft. And perhaps we shouldn't call that popular culture. That, that is a long, esteemed, skilled, trained métier in which uh, you, you went through a kind of apprentices system. Gris also does it, such as in the great 1914 painting, The Sunblind, in which he's both riffing on wallpaper and on that kind of gradation in painting that you were talking about a moment ago. It's one of the most dramatic two-page spreads of the catalog. We'll try to get it for, for the website. Speaking of decoration and decorative arts, the tabletop. Tabletop as a site for painting is a staple of Cubist scholarship. It's a staple of still life scholarship. And that's in the show and that's in the book, of course. But a tabletop isn't only a tabletop, right? It's made out of something. And some tabletops, you know, especially before the 20th century, could be quite elaborate and decorative and spectacular indeed. So what are some of the ways in which decorative artists had constructed tabletops? And how do you think the Cubist trio engaged with and extended that in Cubist painting? Well, so we have represented tabletops in two ways. And then we have actual tabletops. And we have actual tabletops in, in Trompe l'Oeil. There, there, there were artists who worked with, with colored marbles to create the look of empty, recently empty pockets on a table. So you, you might have a, a marble tabletop that illusionistically looks like there's books and coinage spread across it. Or you have, we have an example of a tabletop by uh, Louis-Léopold Boyi, who in fact is the artist responsible for the name Trompe l'Oeil, because before that, the Dutch artists referred to their, uh, and British artists referred to their work as visual deceptions or counterfeits or counterfeits. So the term, the French term Trompe l'Oeil only comes into use in 1800 when Boyi exhibits a work uh, at that salon that year and calls it a, a Trompe l'Oeil. And we have an exquisite tabletop by Boyi which again looks like this idea of recently emptied pockets. Another term for this trope is the messy table. So it has a miniature advertising his skill at portraiture, some coinage and his calling cards amongst other things on this table. And it served as an actual Garridon table onto which you could, could leave something if you didn't want to spoil the beautiful work of art on top. We didn't, choose to put any of the enormous inlaid marble tables, although we reproduce one of those in the catalog. But to go back to this, so that, that's one genre of actual physical furniture that has Trompe in it. And then in the representational realm, we have a room devoted to things on a table, which are objects, usually vanitas objects or newspapers and crockery or playing cards 
And that room, interestingly, where we took pains to make it clear that the representation of, of things on the table where the table edge is at the bottom or in the foreground, and then there is a, a deeper space, that is not trompe proper. That's not these studio wall scenes or board paintings or letter racks where the objects are displayed coming out towards you. Here, there's a bit of recessive space. This is the, the sort of larger still life tradition at work. However, within that, there again are magisterial examples of illusionism plus the threshold spaces of knives or cards toppling over the edge, the carving of the table edge itself, which is always close to, to the viewer. And these still lives in general, both the Cubist versions and uh, the ones by Van de Velde that we have, or Melenthes, the great Spanish still life painter, or Basquinas, they're also often, they carry messages, they're allegories, usually of life's transience or vanitas, or also masculine pastimes. This is a very masculine world in these tabletop still lives, pipes and playing cards and beer, all the disorderly behavior that is reflected uh, in the accumulation of, of objects. The other type of tabletop is uh, playing with the conceit of of the dual directional reading, as if we see these papers. They're usually papers scattered on a table, granite or wood, yet we read them vertically on the wall. I referred to, to this before. And this is really fascinating because this was this underground subculture in watercolor or in print, artists meticulously reproducing known documents or their own handiwork. Yes. And uh, on these flat grounds. And, and, and by their own handiwork, let me jump in. You mean, you know, prints and drawings? Prints and drawings, or the replicating the work of others. This is a fascinating sub theme. Really, it's a sopra theme. It's a big theme throughout the show, which is the mise en abîme of a picture within a picture, a, a copy of an original, which itself becomes unique. This play between original and, and copy is really mind bending. What is an honest forgery? What is sincerity? What is authenticity? So they begin already in the 1600s or playing this game. And uh, these, these prints and drawings and printed matter spread across the table are a fascinating occasion to ponder this. And yet we see them on the wall. And of course, these works don't have straps or tacks. So they defy gravity because we're looking at them on the wall and the, the paper should slip down. But they don't because we're also realizing that they're spread across the table. And it's often been said of cubism, as you just referred to, that they play between the table and the tableau. They often do oval canvases to emphasize that, like a table. Uh, so we're seeing them in two ways, flat and also a little bit in space in their case, or completely flat in the case of Georges Brock. And we were fascinated to see particularly Brock's papier collé, how he inscribes the tabletop, rectangular, circular oval with a charcoal line. And then his newspapers and wallpapers are, sort of, for the most part, just rectangles spread out. Now there too, they're littered with illusions. We're supposed to read the print. But it, it, he's, he's remaining true to this idea of the so-called messy table of, of, of print matter just spread across the table. So that was a real revelation for us. We also chose rather daringly, I think, in the exhibition to reproduce, to display rather, one of the earlier medley prints, Willem Robart's fantastic trompe l'oeil, which includes documents of an inventory list from the Dutch East Indies Company, a calendar, a map, and his own engravings. We have framed it and it sits on a table. It's actually physically flat on the table and uh, on a period table. 
two things from what you just laid out. One, another transatlantic moment of affinity. American wealthy folks in the late mid to late 19th century who traveled to Europe loved to come back to the United States with, with, with these tables and tabletops made with many kinds of marble inlaid overlapping trompe So that was one of those, those areas where America was as interested in the thing as Europe. And then in terms of... Uh, you were talking about Picasso and Brock, including drawings and prints in their cubist works. Gris does it too, of course, such as in the great, the very great guitar of 1913, which is another work in which Gris embeds references to both Picasso and Brock and their rivalry and teamwork in the composition itself. So the kind of you know print or the printed paper he includes in the work is two people, possibly of mother and son walking forward together. And then elsewhere in, in the painting, Cree has a guitar, which I, I always think of as, as Spanish and Picassoid. Thanks, Anne Umlin, for making sure I never wander from that. But also faux bois and, and decorative marble painting, also referencing Brock. So all of that, Cree doing it again. And then we have this extraordinary, uh, we have both paintings in which he used a real a print, exactly, the one on the left from the Pompidou and the one on the right now in the in the Metzone collection. And this, this is really astonishing. So yes, Picasso does the first collage with the trompe l'oeil rattan weave chair caning. To call it chair caning, of course, misses the point because it's an oilcloth. An oilcloth was used for tablecloths. So it's a tablecloth that reproduces this, this rattan weave. And then Brock is the first to introduce the pasted papers with the faux bois, as you've just said. But it's Gris who sort of trumps them with the inclusion of an old master print, in both cases, 19th century engravings themselves. For example, the one in the uh, violin and engraving is an engraving after a, a Turner watercolor. And so we again, we have a reproduction after an original, and that reproduction was then bought into an oil and canvas to make it, it, it unique. And in an unrivaled way. And he frames this with this trompe molded frame and then it hangs on the wire with the ubiquitous nail casting a shadow. So what more evidence could you have than this, than this awareness of this uh, trompe tradition? Yet he ups the ante by no longer meticulously reproducing by hand an engraving in the oil medium, but just sticks in the actual engraving. So yes, Duchamp might have done the bicycle wheel in 1913, but in that same year, Gris actually, poor under some Gris, right? Actually puts in a a ready-made work of art. This is really extraordinary. And uh, in the room called Things on a Wall, where the Gris guitar hangs with the the mother and son print, we also have examples of this uh, tradition of prints on a wall or prints on a wooden board to which he is referring, including it's, it became such a commonplace trope that it's used by Sèvres in, in, in earthenware, you know, the print with the curling corner on the faux bois. So he knows exactly what he's referring to here, yet it's an astonishing step. And it's an astonishing step on that threshold. Thresholds, again, are so important. We know we're dealing with metapictorial conceits when our attention is drawn to the threshold. And amusingly, uh, when it came to the uh, violin and engraving, Grease says to Conviler, when Mr. Brenner you know, was buying the picture, Mr. Brenner being the dealer, Joseph Brenner in New York, please tell him that if he doesn't like the print, he can take it out and replace it with one that he does like. I mean, isn't that great? It's <laughs> wild. So, so Lizzie and I then looked at the, at the frame, which you see is broken on the side. We always just thought he's playing away here. Paint, painted is broken, but yeah. 
yeah, it's it's sort of, and we thought, well, maybe it's open to the side to sort of emphasize that you can take the printout and put your own version in. But the way your mind works, as Cecile Brusati said, I, I think it was Cecile Brusati, a great Netherlandish scholar, the essence Book's of strong. joy is this this meaning is open, right? These disparate things are brought together. And just like Cubist collages, it means the the, the viewer it, interpretation is almost endless. Count on the Hoogstraten scholar to to be yes. good on Trump Loy, right? In this Gree, we're, we're discussing where he was joking that the print could be removed. It's also an example of Gree having fun with shadowing. So he includes both the framed engraving in the painting on the surface, and then and then that kind of broken or angled frame you were talking about reveals the shadow of the thing on the wall, which of course is as phony as lots of other things in the painting. Speaking of Gris, I wanted to wrap up by going back to the very early in your catalog essay, the third paragraph, and how you write that you hope the show, quote, narrows the competition between Gris and Brock and Picasso. And that's an idea that points to how the artists themselves were collaborative and in competition, which we've talked about a good bit. And that we, in 2022, might be best served by getting out of thinking of cubism as a competition for an Olympic platform with a first, second, and third. And it got me wondering how, as you worked on this project over many years and kind of many extra years, thanks to the pandemic, did you fight that tendency to think of them as one, two, and three, or did you just kind of embrace it and resist it as you worked? Because I think that as I went, I haven't seen the show yet. It just, it opened, we're taping this the day after it opened, but I've read the catalog and it's, it's a tripartite thing rather than a, than a platform thing. Thank you for, for noticing that. I think the answer is yes. And yes, that is uh, on the one hand, we, we, I think document historically, how they were competitive with each other, particularly Brock and Picasso. You yourself just mentioned that. But uh, we also wanted each to be recognized for what they did within this, this Trompeau tradition. And we were very conscious about equal representation. Picasso always gets the most attention. And interesting, that's reflected also in market prices for Picasso. I was going to, yes. <laughs> and the we were very careful to have shared rooms and then rooms where they're sort of each on their own. So the artisanal mm-hmm. tradition room is all Brock, naturally. That's historically accurate. The things on a table is mostly Greece. It's sort of an astonishing room, beautiful mm-hmm. room. I'd like to think they're all astonishing, but the visual firepower in that room with Gris next to the Baskinas and the Vandevelds and others is, is extraordinary. There's a couple of Picassos in there. We have an over-the-top moment with Picasso and his illusionism run amok, but uh, Gris is, it dominates that room. He, he goes mano mano with Picasso in shadow play. The section on Paragone is all Picasso. Wallpaper, it's mixed again, and Brock gets his own room in Paparophilia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Gris is the strongest by far in typography. So we made deliberate mm. choices. On, but I have to say also that we were also constrained or advantaged by the loans we could receive. We're ha- very happy in the end. We have some dynamite loans, things that have not seen before, have not been really seen before or in decades. And for example, there's a marvelous Juan Gris from the Art Institute of Chicago. All papier collets cannot be regularly exhibited, right? Their works on paper. And we were very grateful to lenders who lended these these fragile things and works on paper, which always have to go through cycles of not being exposed to light. 
But in the case of the Art Institute, it was the occasion, and another collage actually, it was the occasion for their conservators to work on that collage, to stabilize it, I think to take the varnish off as well, so that we could have it for the show. And they were so excited because this was something that no one was really looking at closely and never understood in a larger context. And I have to say there were fantastic international collaborations and uh, conversations between the Met's Paper and Paintings Conservator and those and colleagues in Britain and France and across the country. And that's a really wonderful thing, right? Because we can talk about the history of ideas, which is important, but these are also material objects that need to be preserved and taken care of. And and we're very happy that that's been the case in, in several instances. A transatlantic show in many ways. Emily Braun, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Tyler. The Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia presents Infinity on the Horizon, an exhibition that brings attention to the power art has to influence our understanding of the environment. Open through December 31st, it features modern and contemporary objects in the museum's permanent collection, including art by Georgia O'Keeffe, Elaine de Kooning, and Richard Mayhew. Foregrounding female, black, indigenous, and queer perspectives, it underscores how abstraction as an artistic strategy can expand our understanding of the landscapes around us. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about Infinity on the Horizon, or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. Women Painting Women, on view May 15th through September 25th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Women Painting Women features 46 female artists who choose women as subject matter in their works. This presentation, international in scope, includes evocative portraits that span the late 1960s to the present. All place women, their bodies, gestures, and individuality at the forefront, conceiving new ways to activate and elaborate on the portrayal of women. The artists highlighted in the exhibition use painting and women as subject matter and range from early trailblazers like Alice Neal and Emma Amos to emerging artists such as Jordan Castile and Apollonia Sokol. Women Painting Women at the Modern through September 25th. Welcome back. Next up. Mark Steinmetz, who's included in Reckonings and Reconstructions, Southern Photography from the Do Good Fund at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia. The Do Good Fund is a Columbus, Georgia-based charity that collects and makes available to museums photography of the American South made from the 1950s to the present. The exhibition, which includes artists such as Jill Frank, Baldwin Lee, Deborah Luster, Gordon Parks, and Ramel Ross, as at the GMOA through January 8th, 2023. Steinmetz also contributed a portfolio titled Arena and Amelia to the new 70th anniversary issue of Aperture magazine. The new issue of Aperture also features work by John Edmonds, Hannah Whitaker, and others, and is available from Aperture for $25. We will have a link on manpodcast.com. Mark Steinmetz, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Okay, hello. It's good to be here. You have made a series of books on the South, the final one of which is called Greater Atlanta. And among the the pictures in Reckonings and Reconstructions at the Georgia Museum of Art are an Atlanta picture or two. So I wanted to start there. You have been shooting Atlanta since the mid-1990s. And 
I mean, in fact, you know, you've spent about a quarter century making pictures of Atlanta and even longer of, of greater Atlanta. So leaving alone the megalopolis's proximity to your home, what made Atlanta a project you wanted to explore and that held your interest? I first photographed in Atlanta in 1994. Well, maybe I had been there in 1992, just passing through. I had been in Knoxville, uh, Tennessee before that. Well, I mean, the entire story is that in Knoxville, I was photographing pictures that became the pictures in South Central. And those featured a lot of middle, middle-aged men. There were kids, there were teenagers, I mean, all kinds of people, but a lot of older men, uh, particularly men along the side of the roads and, and other things too. It's a, it's a mix. There are, there are scenes and still lives. And then I moved from Knoxville to Athens, Georgia, and the population that I was interested in shifted. I didn't see the things I was seeing in, in Tennessee. Athens was very different. You know, it's a rock and roll town. The B-52s are going to be playing here in a month. I think their final concert, you know, R.E.M. was here, Vic Chestnut. So I was, and I was interested in just shifting. So I was photographing more youth culture in Athens, and it was also in Atlanta quite a bit, especially around the little five points in Atlanta. And Atlanta seemed in the mid 90s like a kind of decimated city. The interstates must have torn through neighborhoods there in the 1950s or, you know, through the 70s. Uh, and I don't think it had fully recovered. It seemed pretty desolate in many ways, particularly uh, Midtown, areas very close to High Museum where, I mean, there was prostitution, empty lots, and it looked it looked good to me. So I was interested in uh, new construction that was taking place. I was interested in forgotten areas in the city covered with kudzu. And I, with my work, I keep changing what I'm photographing. And then for then Atlanta to me represented new America and new urban construction. So and they were building a lot of tall buildings. So I was looking at those sorts of things. But when I say greater Atlanta, it's it's yes, there's Atlanta, but also the outlying suburbs. Which lie and lie and lie. I mean they go on forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I was <laughs> I was in Germany a month ago, and it's just startling how you have these compact little little towns and cities, and you're you're on the train, and then you're just in fields and meadows and farmlands, and then then you're back into the into the tight little city. There's such a division between inside the city and outside, and and yeah, I mean, it, it, Atlanta has expanded tremendously, and. It's kind of interesting. I think it's a good life for people. It is sort of a city under a forest, and the the uh, surrounding neighborhoods, you know, cities are are as well. But there's been no check to that expansion. You know, it's kind of like un, unbalanced. But any, I do think they've done a very good job because it's it's much better. Atlanta has has filled in. I think they've you know had some made some good architectural decisions, at least in on the neighborhood level and it's much more lively than it was in the in the mid 90s and so i think it's a pretty good story for atlanta and i can't really say about 
outside of Atlanta, Sandy Springs. It's it's like a very wealthy area full of condos. I wouldn't want to live there, but I think it's good for people who like, you know, they don't want to deal with, you know, anything. And it's, it's all just so convenient, you know, and that, I think that's the problem with America. Maybe this addiction to convenience and in some ways not having to deal with, with so much stuff. So you just have your isolated house and your car and you know, and there you there you go. But it's not so. It's not. But it's not like it's not terrible. But of course, there's environmental loss, and also I think there's this you know breeding conformity. And I think with conformity, there's always apathy always follows. So I don't think people are super vibrant with the decisions that are made and in, in how these how these cities have been have been constructed. I think one of the through points through your work of and around Atlanta all these years is the tension between what a society has to do to produce that sprawl, cars, roads, and humanity, just people. So there are pictures within the Atlanta series, for example, there's one of a man standing on a curb or a young man, maybe maybe a boy, standing on a curb facing an eight-lane road. And you can almost see the thought bubble above his head, oh, this is anti-human. And then throughout the quarter-century-long series of pictures, there are also portraits of people, often indeed posed on cars. Was that tension between the people and the place they built for themselves or inhabit core to the project, to your interest in the, the place over the many years? Yes. People are, partic particularly there are pictures of young kids, the the pedestrian, you know, who is in the predicament of crossing the eight, eight lanes. He's maybe 12 years old. Yeah, it's, it's about progress. It's about people and how people actually are and what people require, and I think it's worked at questions progress. I, I took the pictures, and in the background of my mind was always this thought of oil peak, you know, where we've, we've peaked in oil, and I, I don't know if that's true. It's obviously a bad idea to continue burning fossil fuels, but I thought I was kind of recording you know, the height of a, of a certain kind of excess in our modern society, you know, that, that things would have to retract somehow after this, that, that we would come to our senses a little bit more. And the book would be a record of, you know, a kind of folly based on having designed everything around the automobile. In the, in the book, there's fast like a fast food window oh we're going to talk about that picture <laughs> okay okay well there are a lot there are a lot of things that are just uh, you know it's all about the car in some way not not all you know not not all but and it's sort of inevitable if you're photographing america it's uh, i i find it hard to uh, imagine somebody like photographing america and and making a book that's very different from this book because this seems to me what what we've got going for ourselves. It's in Atlanta, but it's, it's, it's elsewhere. So that fast food picture you referenced, it shows a Bojangles drive-through window. Bojangles is, I think, a Georgia-based. No, that's Zaxby's. I get, I get Bojangles and Zaxby's mixed up. Maybe Bojangles is a North Carolina-based fast food chicken chain. And so the picture shows a Bojangles drive-through window 
you know, and, and, and both kind of wings of the window are open so that the person handing food to the car is, is shown. And, and so it's a picture that obviously fits everything we're talking about. But for me, it also recalls the many European paintings of women in windows, sometimes sometimes with an elderly procurus behind them. I'm thinking of a, of a picture like uh, Maria's Two Women at a Window at the National Gallery of Art. Were you after any of those associations, be it straight art historical or maybe the relationship between our, you know, bending at the knee of, of, of well, I guess, as you put it earlier, a certain convenience? I mean, I, I'm part of this art historical tradition. I've, I've seen paintings. I think there's a, there are a lot of references in my work to other kinds of photographs that have been made. There might be tipping my hat to, you know, a certain photographer, a certain body of work. And I think if somebody's really into art history and, and the history of photography and, you know, particularly, you know, American and French photography, that they would, I think that it would enhance the work in some way, you know. Well, you know, the the, the window that the, that that girl is in is also like a compartment, you know, she's kind of compartmentalized in her space. It, it does kind of imprison her. Maybe that's true for all these, you know, th- these pictures of, of women behind windows that you were talking about. But so is one, does one take precedence over the other? Can't really answer that. I think it's, it just goes hand in hand, the formal reference and then what the picture might be about. Speaking of those art historical rifts, the picture we talked about a moment ago of the 12-year-old faced with crossing an eight-lane road reminded me a lot of Anthony Hernandez's work in L.A., um, the, the, the young lad. Uh, there isn't a, a bit of shade in sight, and of course, we all know what Atlanta can be like. There is a picture that's in the show at the Georgia Museum titled Athens, Georgia, 1995, which shows a a white a, a white painted house being overtaken by kudzu, and the associations within the picture range from the art historical associations range from Christenberry to Walker Evans to even Cubism and and the the town of Horta, and it's and the kudzu is flattening the scene. So yes, those those associations are there a ton. You know, one of the things about the Atlanta pictures that really strikes me is how much how strong the relationship is between how you make Atlanta look and how Los Angeles is. Near the beginning of your career, you made work in L.A. in the early 30s, but I got to say this work of Atlanta is nothing like that early L.A. work. Your early L.A. work was very much in the thrall of, of Winogrand. Yeah, the the early L.A. work was in the, you just said the 30s, so it was in I'm the sorry, a- 80s. Er, early 80s. <laughs> 80s. And I, and I don't mean and, to be dating I, you. And I was and I was 22. I yeah. love the 30s. I think it's it's my favorite era. So, yeah, I sampled. Good lord, I'm, I'm all about killing off the guests. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. uh, <laughs> but I, I I notice in a number of the Atlanta pictures there are some art historical references that that seem to be pulled from L.A. And I wanted to ask about one in particular. There's a picture in which you're in a car. And we see a traffic-choked freeway with more traffic-choked freeway reflected in a rear-view mirror that's in the foreground of the picture. And it seems to me a kind of riff on Dennis Hopper's early 1960s picture, Double Standard. And so I wonder if you're ever that direct or intentional in your 
construction of lineage in your nods to to both past and geography. And who did you say? You said Dennis Hopper? Or? Yeah, his his picture double standard, which also makes use of a of a mirror uh, in a car. I'm not familiar with that with that work, but sure, I think L.A. is yeah the quintessential product of you know all this you know all the cars and highways and all the you know famous clover leaves over there you know no nobody walks in LA but i'm not i'm not sure what to what to say i think i think that picture of uh, that i took using the car car window it's kind of a cartoon you know it's a bit of an illustration of of the scene and it, it's sort of a cartoon in the way that the boy crossing the eight eight lanes is a cartoon, and I, so you mentioned before Anthony Hernandez, and I like Anthony Hernandez's pictures of people waiting at bus stops. They're just so full of those are like facts. Those are like there's a material complexity of the world and and of um, you know all the stuff in on our streets and with our uh, the garages in the in the background. So um, I mean, th- those pictures are both sort of simplified pictures, and not to say that I'm making a bunch of cartoons, but there are there are few in there that behave a little bit more like that. And you were even saying, you could see the thought bubble above the boy. So you know, that's an indication that it's a little little different from other pictures like Anthony Hernandez's. You have also made a dedicated series of works on the Atlanta airport. A, a series called ATL slash Terminus. And one of those pictures is in the Georgia Museum show. It's of somebody sitting down facing this anti-human wall of glass that makes up the outer wall of, of an airport terminal. I guess I'm slightly surprised that airports are not more prominent in American photography. What attracted you to Atlanta's airport and wanting to address it over at least a six-year period? Well, I'm surprised, too, that it's not more of a, you know, Gary Winogrand did photograph in in airports, and there is a book of his work. The airports in those days were very different. They, you know, you, you could just, you know, basically walk out onto the runways and take pictures. But uh, yeah, the, the airport, it, it's an extension of the street in some way. It's, you know, you see the teeming democratic masses. Yeah, and it's it's still an arena for, for you know, middle class people to, to, to gather and, you know, of course, upper class. I've always been in love with the image of the, the traveler and the passenger. There are pictures by August Sonder of somebody by the side of the road and he's got a suitcase there and uh, I just love that and I uh, Winogrand has a few people hitchhiking with their suitcases by their feet and Walker Evans has a great one of a couple and I just love that and I so I love and I love photographing voyagers and and travelers and people with suitcases I also love photographing planes in flight. I just think it's great. And it's really hard to stop doing it. If I live by an airport, every time the plane goes up, it's it's just kind of a thrill. And then, and then what does it fly over? You know, so that, that project has, it's about the people traveling. It's about people waiting 
And that's sort of similar to Anthony Hernandez's work because he's trying to photograph the kind of the state of waiting as people wait for, for buses to come or, or whatever. It's a kind of purgatory. Uh. <laughs> Every, everyone nods. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and really flying, it's it's kind of like the birth and death experience. You know, you're here in Italy and then you land in Atlanta. And where did all that just go? You know, it's all like crumpled up and gone. It's also a mass experience experienced individually. And one of the things that runs through your airport pictures is that everybody in them, everybody is self-absorbed, is, is mm-hmm. surrounded by mm-hmm. lots of other people, but is mm-hmm. entirely within their own space. Well, I've always been interested in that note of, you know, somebody having some thoughts. I'm really interested in the state of boredom. Always loving, love to photograph kids, just bored. And I also like activity, you know, things happening. And if you can be <laughs> bored in the midst of activity, that's 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 just great. <laughs> <laughs> a definition of the photographer might be being active when surrounded by boredom. Well, <laughs> I, I, I do. You know, the photography is about stillness. You, you, you want to be present and in the moment, and you want to kind of slow time down so you can execute the picture and 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 not get caught up in everything that's that's happening. Uh, photography, it's about extracting some some image from some event and the image that's extracted might have very little to do with what's really happening. But so you're kind of, you know, you're at a bit of a distance to, you know, carve from what's happening, you know, this picture that you can, that you can see, but it, it's, uh, you know, you have to be aware that it's, that the photographs never explain anything and and the context is going to be gone. And, uh, you know, you're going to wind up with, with one, with one image um, that is still. Your work is also featured within a portfolio in the 70th anniversary issue of Aperture Magazine, which is out now. And that portfolio is titled Arena and Amelia. Who are Arena and Amelia? And why, you know, when you had an opportunity to, to present a body of work in Aperture, why did you pick that body of work? Well, first, Irina is my wife, uh, Irina Rozovsky. She's also a photographer, a fine photographer who's had uh, books published. Amelia is my daughter, who is now five and a half years old. And the Aperture issue, it's a 70th anniversary issue, and they commissioned seven photographers to, in some ways, do a contemporary body of work that would reflect one of those decades. Uh, so I mentioned a few possible ways I could go. One was to do a photograph kind of in the vein of minor minor white, and I'd be a very unlikely photographer to do that. But I, th- I thought I could go up to North Carolina and look at waterfalls and do something very trippy and very black and white and strange. But And I also mentioned that I could photograph, that I have been photographing my my wife and daughter, and there's an issue from the 1980s called Mothers and Daughters, which I think was an important issue. It was, you know, that in the 80s, okay, there was a Winograd out in the streets and Friedlander out in the streets, and, and the streets seemed to be like this complete world. But more and more photographers, particularly women photographers, were photographing 
in middle class circumstances in the homes, in, in kitchens. You know, there are movies like Spielberg where E.T. or I think he did Poltergeist where things happen in like a suburban kitchen, you know. And so I, the, anyway, their their book, Mothers and Daughters, was preceded Peter Galassi's book at MoMA, Pleasures and Terrors of Domestic Comfort, by a, by a few years. And it was part of that that movement. So I have pictures of my wife and daughter, and I think they're both great subjects. And I've always been photographing in my domestic circumstances, as well as, you know, being out on the streets of America. I photographed my parents a long time ago, and there's a, a book, Philip and Micheline, that TBW published maybe maybe 10 or 12 years ago. And that was my my parents moving from their old house to a uh, assisted living facilities to a nursing home, you know, and so it's sort of documenting, you know, the end of their lives. So it's not it's not a new thing for me to be photographing, you know, my family. The photograph in the center of the portfolio is a picture of your daughter, Amelia. I'm going to guess like three and a half-ish, four-ish. And she's walking through or at least standing in shrubbery, small trees. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's she's going down some stairs between, yeah, there's, there's some shrubs on either side. She's maybe four, and I think she's going to pre-K in that. It's one of her early you know, early trips to school and uh, she's got a backpack on. She's got this kind of, I, if, you know, there was a pandemic and we didn't have her watch anything, but somehow she just got into her princess phase anyway. And, um, you know, there was, <laughs> there was like frozen and she's wearing a princess dress in the picture. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it might be a sleeping beauty dress, but I think she was thinking it was Elsa from frozen. She, she's just, you know, but anyway, it's just amazing how osmosis works. Maybe the kid like two blocks over was getting into it and, and then she, she just caught it on the wind. But yeah, so Anyway, you were saying about that. Yeah, that so picture. she's wearing a a a jacket with a with a big hood, and she almost looks kind of like a boy. I'm going to regret this as soon as I say it. Kind of like a druid figure emerging emerging from from the wilderness, and it's an it's a picture that you know prompts lots of historical and art historical associations for me. Not not all or really any of them about children, and I think it works as a picture because it 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 joins these things. Why did you pick this one to include? And do you remember what about it caught your eye when you were making it? Well, I think, you know, that she is in that dress, that she has a heavy backpack of, you know, I think the the, the setting and the the atmosphere, the light is, is good. It's raining. I mean, it's, it's, you can tell it's sort of damp. Yeah, it's humid. It's a humid yeah. picture. Yeah, she has a she has a, a you know raincoat over her dress, so I think it's very much about her. She is determined. She uh, you know is looking down at her feet as she's going off you know for her work. So it's kind of like a father documenting her daughter in the early days of going to school, you know. But other other than that, I I just feel it has 
you know, the, the right amount of activity and that she's descending the staircases and she is kind of, you can tell even though you, you don't see her eyes, you can tell that she's looking down to watch her next step. That's enough. The last picture in the portfolio is of your daughter walking, I guess, up a country road. The left-hand side of the road is full of, I think, oak trees. The right-hand side is open field, and she's looking back at you. It's another one of those pictures that triggered lots of art historical illusions for me without really ever being too direct about any one of them. Is this a dad picture of the sort you were kind of describing a moment ago? or is... in, 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 in a sense, it's there are a lot of pictures of her where she's clearly learning to walk like she's stepping over something. There are a lot more pictures than, you know, of course, they could show in this in the essay. But there are a lot about basic building blocks of kids growing up. You know, like I did a book on cats and uh, the ancient tigers of my neighborhood. It's, it's a very limited edition, so people haven't seen it. But that book shows, you know, the cats bump their heads. The cats are licking their paws. I think it's a very useful guide in some way. And, and I would think that the pictures that I take too would be a, a useful guide to what a parent would see growing up. It would serve that that purpose. That picture is actually in Paso Robles, California, and it's down the road of my um, principal publisher, Nazreli. But there's something about her being that distant from me. You know, it's, of course, an open road. There's There's nobody there. And you just see how small she is and she's standing. And, you know, I think that distance is something that because usually she's right with us all the time. So that might have been as, as far away as, we, you, know, you know, she's ever, ever gotten. So I think some of it has to, has to do with maybe the experience of, of, uh, of being a parent. And then art historically, I can't, I can't answer that. I, certainly the trees on the, on the side have their shapes. I've, I did a body of work, Tuscan trees, and I, I love uh, the gestures that particularly kind of nervous trees can make. Or I think the, I think the, uh, I think for the Tuscan trees, which are pictures of olive trees, it's, they're wise trees. The older and you know, the older and wiser an olive tree gets, the more kind of interesting it it, it looks. So I so I'm responding to to that. It, maybe there are some sort of everything's in the background. You know, it's is there some fairy tale component to these twisting trees? You know, is she safe on the side of the road and 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 what's in that thicket? I I don't want photography to be too explicit everything is kind of in the background it's all subtext for me i think that's a more more powerful place i think good photography is where the picture is working and you don't know how it's working or or why it's working this one works for me because in that line of roadside trees there's some Corot and pizarro there is some joel Meyerowitz. There's kind of all of, of those associations. Also, I should I should note you've actually done two books of cats. <laughs> yeah, there's there's well there's a little book of cats, a one picture book, and then there's this from a, a six by six series, and that's a a larger book, and that's called the Ancient Tigers of My Neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm all for I'm all for books on cats. 
Yeah, maybe there will be, because uh, I keep photographing cats, and uh, you know, and you mentioned at the start that uh, Greater Atlanta is the final book on Atlanta, and it's it's kind of not in that. Well, first ATL, the that that book is coming out, and that will that's certainly a book on Atlanta, but I'm still photographing the pictures that are pictures that are in the vein of Greater Atlanta. It's just there's more more modernity and so maybe there will be like son of greater atlanta or greater atlanta <laughs> strikes again i'm not sure what what the title would be but it's ongoing and pictures of cats are ongoing and pictures of my daughter and wife are ongoing and i think it'll be i think it'll be everything is sort of better in time i like editing years later just things have sort of settled and and things occur in the editing process that that wouldn't occur to you earlier on, you know, trying to edit too early. A metaphor for the construction of the metropolis of Atlanta, that. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Mark Steinmetz, thanks very much. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.